You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. We come to the study of God, and this is what we're going to be dealing with for the next couple of weeks. In fact, this is what we endeavor our life really to be about. Theology is a field of study which examines the concept expressed by the word God. It is an attempt to apply as much as possible the principles of our scientific investigation, if you will, let's, let's say that, to the dimensions of a human thought and experience, uh, which is not entirely suited to investigation. Why? Because God is beyond. He is beyond us. And so theology is the attempt to apply the most precise human reasoning to uncover and explain the reality of mankind's loftiest notions. Now there's a uniqueness about theology in the world's religions, and that's this, that the study of God, and catch this, the study of God is unique to the Christian endeavor. The study of God is unique to the Christian endeavor. If you look at all other religions in the world today, they do not focus upon the study of God. Judaism, modern-day Judaism, focuses upon the study of self. This is interesting. Focuses on the study of self, man, and the application of religion in practical living. Other religions abandon the study of God altogether in favor of an entirely subjective belief system. So it's Christianity, the Christian, that dedicates his life to the study of God. Go to the slide here. It says, Christianity alone seeks to expose the reality and details of God objectively by gathering evidence and trying to decipher it in accordance with a more rational and scientific method. This is unique about what what we are following after because we are trying to find out about God. So when you, when you go into your religion class or your philosophy class or whatever, they're not studying about God. In fact, they've set God in some place where maybe he's known, maybe he can't be known. But really what they're studying is they're studying other subjective belief systems. What we're looking at in this study is absolute, how God is not subjective, how God is not relative, but how he is absolute And he is the absolute. He's the only absolute. Amen. Amen. So Christianity's primary claim that God was manifest in the flesh, offered proof to his person, his identity, and his plan, demands that theology, hear me, be its highest academic priority and ultimate endeavor. So Christianity makes this claim that God manifests himself in the flesh, That God offered himself as a proof in person, in plan, and that alone, by the nature of that, makes it the thing that we must make our number one endeavor. Our number one endeavor is not to come to church and dress up so we can impress other people. It's not, our number one endeavor is not even so, and, and this may go against a little bit of our our uh, cultural thinking, but our number one endeavor is not even so that we can live in peace and harmony with other human beings. 
That's not our number one endeavor. Now that is a tremendous benefit and blessing as I preached Sunday morning. And I talked about how that happens, amen, when we follow after Christ. But our number one endeavor is for us to know God so that I might know Him. That's my number one goal. That's my number one objective in life. Somebody say amen. <clears throat> That's your number one goal. That is the point and the purpose of life. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this in another study. But the point of our existence is to know God, is to learn about God. That is why you were created. You were not created just to enjoy good food, beautiful sunshine, and nice people. That's the blessing and the benefit of being a creature of God. But you were created so that you would know God. That becomes the ultimate endeavor. It alone, Christianity <coughs> alone claims quantifiable, evidential proof of its belief. It alone is totally dependent on the identity of a historical person. And so it stands unique. It is, it is removed from other religions of men, which are all systems of subjective belief. And this is the thing. If you look at other religions, subjective belief. That is the power of the movement behind ecumenicalism. Because it's subjective. And so if it's subjective, that means it's good for me. Everybody know what I mean when I say ecumenical? It's good for me, but what's good for me may not be good for you. And so maybe it's something different that's better for you. And so you got to find, I'm reading a book right now called, um, what's the Nike? It's the bestseller, the Nike guy. Uh, anybody know it's, it's uh, in all the stores? Um, the founder of Nike wrote a book, a biography. And so I'm starting, it's quite interesting actually, but he talked about his, when he was graduated from college, he went on this world trip and he wanted to travel all the way. He backpacked around the world literally. And his goal was to go to every civilization and find ancient religions and so that he could experience everything. How sad that was, because he was writing about all that. And uh, although his story sounded exciting, uh, the ending was, sounded really shallow, really, really shallow. But everything is subjective. Can I tell you, we cannot enter into that ecumenical concept. We can't sit at the table of ecumenicalism as oneness apostolics. Is that all right? We are exclusive. That's a word that the world doesn't like. By the way, let me tell you this. Um, nation shall rise against nation. Isn't that what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24? Nation shall rise against nation. If you translate that word nation, if you look at what that word means, it means race. Race shall rise against race. And then he says kingdom against kingdom. Isn't that what he says? He prophesied about that. And then he goes on with that and says, and then you will be hated of all men for my name's sake. So we're seeing things play out that God prophesied about. We're not for it. We don't condone it. We don't stand by it. We denounce it. It's sin. It's wickedness. But I'm going to tell you, we have got to be careful, amen, that we are not afraid to stand up for what's truth and what's right. Amen? Because the church is going to be hated, he said, and afflicted. He used that word afflicted. Afflicted. 
We got to know what we believe if we're going to stand in the midst of affliction. He goes on and says, because of this, many are going to flee. Many are going to run away. And the love of many shall wax cold, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And so we got to, we've got to endure. We can't sit down at the table of ecumenicalism and say, hey, well, you're great and you're nice and all this other stuff. Um, so we stand alone. We stand unique, okay? We cannot say, well, it's good for you. Now, that spirit of ecumenicalism that brings all religions together has entered into the church. And so you see, you see uh, was it the Pope that kissed the Quran a few years ago? Right? I mean, that is just like blasphemy. That should be blasphemy within the Catholic church, let alone. Uh, uh, and you've got all these religions that are coming together, and they're endorsing one another, and they're embracing one another. Amen. I'm going to tell you, whenever I get outside and I work alongside of people, amen, and we help and we're involved with people, we, we ought not be mean, we ought not be rude, amen, but we are following after the one true God. Amen. amen? And so when we, is this all right tonight? So when we help out other people who are, uh, let's say, a Trinitarian in their concept or in their construct, I, I can love them in as much as they love the Lord and they want to follow after God and know everything. But when somebody says, I just, I can't get into that, I've, I've got to say, I'm sorry. We, we, you know, this is, this is what the word says. And, and, and we've had people say, well, you, you baptize in Jesus' name and I just, I, 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 I don't see that. Well... That's their own choice. they got to make their own choice. But if you think that I'm going to stop baptizing in Jesus' name, right? Amen? If I ever stop baptizing in Jesus' name, you better do whatever you can. You better take your children and run. As the one man said, hide your children, hide your wife. Because false teaching, come on, is a destroyer. It'll mess you up. And so Christianity stands alone in this. Let's go to the next, let's go to the next slide here because I'm taking too much time. Christianity is totally dependent upon the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, who is called Christ and who claimed to be God. So Christian theology then differs from all other religions by its objectivity and is not merely the recording of theology and subjective belief. And so because of that, it matters what I think about God. Because of that statement right there, it matters what the Bible says about God. I don't just want to know what church fathers said about God. I want to know what God says about God. What's God think about God? Amen. So um, this isn't in my notes, but maybe later on we'll cover this thought. And this is just a little tangent here. That the unsearchable God... He's unsearchable, right? He's beyond our comprehension. Amen. He's beyond our, 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 our fathomability. I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, the unsearchable God is revealed. He's revealed to us. We don't, how do we know him? Well, he revealed himself to us. Somebody said, well, you know, God is a mystery. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard good men. I use that term, you know, as we would use. Good men get up. And they would teach on the Godhead, and they teach things that uh, uh, they don't understand in Scripture, or they contradict themselves, and then they say, and that's why there's this Trinity. And you'll, I've heard people that teach the Trinity, this is one of their major arguments. 
It's a mystery, and you can never know it. Well, I'm sorry. We don't serve the same God. Because the God I serve has power enough to make himself known. Yes, he's mysterious, but he's also so powerful that he can unravel that mystery and make it simple so that we can understand. That's the power of the God that I serve. Amen. So he is unsearchable, but he revealed himself. That's the beauty. That's what the incarnation was all about. The unsearchable God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and his spirit is his relevant, relative presence to us. And we'll talk about that in the next few series. That'll take a while to probably unfold that. All right, let's go on. We are looking at, we're going to look at eight attributes of God, and these attributes of God are going to be unique attributes of deity. They're going to be unique attributes of deity, not moral attributes. But the unique attributes of deity are those qualities of his being that are uniquely his. They are the things that specifically express his solitary deity separating him from creation. So there are eight things of God that make him God. If he's going to be God, there's these eight things that have to take place. And scripture, of course, teaches us these things. It's these eight things that causes us to know that we're finite, he's infinite, and that we can't know him, but it's these eight things that he's revealed to us that allows us to know him. And so these are unique attributes. Now, there's a difference between these unique attributes of God, which are uniquely his, and the immoral attributes of God that we would ascribe to him things like this, like goodness and justice and purity and integrity and patience and all of those kind of things. We would ascribe those to him too. Those are the moral attributes. But all of his moral attributes are summed up in one unique attribute. And that's going to be the last one that we discuss in that unique attribute. But these unique attributes are things that only apply to God. So this is what we're going to take the next couple weeks to go over. The church, the people of God, the children of God, can share in his moral attributes or will share in his moral attributes and even be partakers, as Peter said, in his divine nature, but will never be the deity. Okay? So the children of God, catch that, can be, is this all right? I know it's Wednesday night. Maybe I shouldn't have done this, gone this deep on the night the kids go back to school. But the church can be partakers in the moral attributes of God but we never become deity. So that's the difference we'd have between, uh, who is it, Joseph Smith, um, Brigham Young, whoever else you want. When you die, you are not going into the eternities to become another god. That's what, that's what they teach. You're going into the eternities when you die. And they call, they call themselves Christians. They believe they're Christian. They also believe that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. They also believe that when you get to heaven, you are going to be a god on par up there. And so that's why it's important that they believe a lot of stuff. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches. doesn't matter how nice you are, you're not God. You can't be God. So the church is going to share in that. But we must recognize that these unique attributes are, are exclusively pertaining to his deity. One of the things that is shocking about the revelation of God 
is this. Not how little he has revealed himself to us, but how much he's revealed himself to us. And God has revealed so many extreme things to us. Let's go on. Uh, God is a generic term, which is not a personal identification. It applies to whatever deity or deities that exist in the mind of men. So these attributes are those that deity must have truly to be, must have to truly be God. The first of these that we want to look at tonight, and probably the only one that we'll get through, which is going to leave me seven to cover next week, but I'm going to do it, amen, is the, this, number one, that God is absolute. Everybody say absolute. He's absolute or transcendent. We could also say transcendent. But God is absolute. This is the most uh, fundamental of all of the unique attributes, and it's also probably the most complex. So we'll, we'll spend the, most, the majority of the night upon this. Uh, and then from here, from this attribute, all other attributes are going to be built upon because you've got to have this one established before you can go to the next one. God is absolute. Absolute, by definition, as an adjective, means free from imperfection, complete, perfect, pure, not mixed or adulterated, free from restriction or limitation, not limited in any way, unrestrained, viewed independent, ultimate. That's, that's what absolute means as an adjective. As a noun, it's something that is not dependent upon external conditions for existence or for its specific nature or size, according to dictionary.com, and it is opposed, opposed to relative. So absolute is opposed to relative. Relative only works in certain conditions. You take those conditions out, whatever those are, time, matter, space, and they don't exist. Absolute exists always. So you heard me say earlier that the Holy Spirit is God's relative presence. We'll talk about that later on. It's his relative presence because it is God manifest himself, making a way that the absolute spirit of God can come down and dwell and work in the hearts of men. So you take away the time, you take away time's existence, creation, and all that stuff, and the Holy Spirit is the relative presence. It's not a separate spirit. You catch what I'm saying? It's not an extension. There's not another. There's not God and then the Holy Spirit. It is the relative presence of God to us in our condition, where we're at in this earth. But God is absolute, and absolute means something that is not dependent upon the external conditions for, extent, for existence. Amen. He is the definition of absolute. You ready? He's absolutely absolute. All right? Now you say, okay, that seems a little contradictory or that seems a little crazy. He's transcendent in the sense that he's above. He's superior. So he's absolute. Okay? He is absolute. He's not relative. He's not conditioned by anything else. He's ultimate. He has, he has no other uh, 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 limitations. He has nothing that's bearing on him. He just is. In, in all of his existence, he is. God is. And that's a good way of describing it. God is. He just is. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Amen? But he's not just absolute. He's absolutely absolute. Okay? 
So he's more absolute than the absolutest thing that you can think of. That's how absolute God is. Okay? Now this is a little bit more complex, so let's explain this. Let's give an explanation of his absoluteness, of how great he is. Okay. So we're going to go through this little exercise. This is not talking about the absoluteness of God, but it's going to illustrate the absoluteness of God. So if, you'll, if you're going to look at a text tonight, we would look at this verse to illustrate this attribute, and it's Psalms 19 and verse 7. And this will probably explain better what I mean by absolutely absolute. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Converting... The soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So this text, in the context of other scriptures dealing with its subject, can be a key to the understanding of the absoluteness of God. So let's list a few things. Hold on, we're going to hold that verse there. We're going to list a couple of things about this verse that we learn. Number one, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. And we'll stop right there. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. So what we see here is that the law is perfect and the perfect law or the law that is perfect converts the soul. Now there's a problem here. Conversion is not the same thing as salvation. So you can be converted... To the idea that God is real. Does that make sense? You can be converted to the idea that God's ways are right. You can even follow in those right ways of God. But you're still not saved. Is that right? According to scripture. Now you all know this. So let's go to the first slide. Let's look at this here. So number one. Let's do this little exercise. Conversion does not equal salvation. We know that. Conversion does not equal salvation. Why? Because salvation is greater than conversion. Okay? Mathematically? You following me here? Right? That's why when Paul comes to them in Acts chapter 19, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Well, they were already converted. Who were, you, who were you baptized to? We were baptized into John's baptism. Well, what, they were following after God. They had been baptized under repentance. They were waiting for Messiah, but they lived in another part of the world. They didn't know he had come. They missed the whole story. They missed the whole narrative. So they're converted, but are they saved? No. That's why Paul, or Peter, no, it's Paul, comes to them. In Acts 19, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost? We haven't even heard about the Holy Ghost. And he preached to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They they were baptized in Jesus' name. Is that right? And they received the gift of the Holy Ghost, praising God, speaking in other tongues. So salvation is greater than conversion. So you had converts that were not yet saved. So we look at this scripture here, and we know this. We know that salvation is not conversion, but go to the next thing. Salvation equals conversion plus being born again. Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. And he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is that right? Except a man be born of water and of spirit, 
You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is flesh, but that which is spirit is spirit. And, and, and he goes on and he explains this to him. So he's letting him know, here's this man. He's coming and he's, he's converted. I, I'm, I'm a believer, but the Lord's saying, okay, but you still have to be saved. Okay, so we know that. So let's go back and look at this verse. So if we look at this verse, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Okay, so go to the next, go to the next thing here. <coughs> next slide. The law equals perfect, and in a mathematical equation, that little arrow means it causes, causes conversion. So the law is perfect, and when you read the law, it causes conversion in your life. Okay? So we know this. The law is not only perfect, but let's look at this. Let's go to Romans chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. The law is also holy and spiritual. Look at this. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy. Everybody see that? And the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which was good made unto me death, or, or, or that which good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear, working death in me. By that which is good, that sin by the commandment might Become exceeding sinful, for we know that the law is, what does it say? Spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, so now we know that the law, go to the next slide. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. Okay? So we know the law is perfect. It leads to conversion. We know the law is holy. We know the law is spiritual. And we know that which is perfect equals that which is holy, which equals that which is spiritual. But we have a problem. Because in the New Testament, the law cannot bring or cause perfection. Okay? Stay with me here. This is, this is getting a little bit deep. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law is perfect, but the law can't cause anything or make anything perfect. You see that? See the problem there is a disconnect. The law is perfect, but it can't make anything perfect. Now stay with me for a minute. I don't want to bore you. But the bringing in of a better hope did, note that, by which we draw nigh unto God. Go to Hebrews 9 and 10. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, can you see that or is that way too small? I might need to make it bigger next time. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, that's a note we'll, we'll mark for later on, was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifice that could not make him that did the service perfect. So here... Paul is, or the writer of Hebrews is telling us the law did not make him perfect. Stay with me here. As pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washing carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. So the law did not make anybody perfect. So go to the next slide. We're putting this, we're breaking this down really, really, really slow. 
Law equals perfect. It leads to conversion. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. So that which is perfect is, is holy. It is spiritual. But it is not able to cause perfection. It is not able to bring perfection in your life. That is why the Old Testament, amen, won't take you to the end. That's why if we stop in Malachi and there's no Messiah, we got problems. Amen? That's what Jesus came to do, to fulfill. So the law purifies only the patterns of heavenly things. The heavenly things require better sacrifices. As told to us, Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these. He's talking about the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Only grace, we know this from the next passage, can justify the imperfect. Now I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. I just heard him say Bubba. I didn't know if he was talking to me or not, but <clears throat> he calls me Bubba. Romans 3, 22 through 24. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, into all and up all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely. Now catch this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So stay with me. Grace does what the law cannot do. The law was perfect, but the law couldn't bring perfection. Right? We've established that. But grace, even though man was short of the glory of God, grace brought redemption. It brought salvation. Go to the next slide. And where are we at? Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay? So go to the next slide. Grace, what law, law cannot cause perfection. Everybody see that? Can't cause salvation. But grace produces salvation while the law does not produce salvation. Okay? So this is a mathematical equation that we have here. If we were to make a formula here of everything that we study, go to the next slide. This would be the formula. Grace equals some mystery piece. You failed at math? Anybody failed at math? Is that what you said? Okay, okay, so I'm, I'm sorry. I went too quick. Grace equals some mystery formula that produces salvation, while the law equals holy, perfect, spiritual, and it only equals conversion. So what in the world is better than perfect, holy, and spiritual? How can we figure this out? If perfection could only bring conversion, who is needed to bring salvation? Perfection doesn't bring, convert, doesn't bring salvation. The law is perfect, but it can't produce conversion. It can't bring perfection. So what is needed here is, go to the next slide. Here's what we need. Does this make sense? Did you catch that? 
more than perfect. The law is perfect. Stay with me. It's Wednesday night here. We've had a long week. The law is perfect, but grace is more than perfect. The law is holy, but grace is more than holy. You see that? You see that? You catch that? I don't know if, I, I don't know if, I'm, I'm, if I'm, I'm relaying this the same. God is absolute, but he's absolutely absolute. He's transcendent. He's above whatever you think it could be. That's, that's, that's why. So, so, so what I'm saying here is that grace is more than perfect. Something more than perfect. That, there is perfect, but then there's more than perfect. There's good, but then there's more than good. That's what God is. He's absolute. He's above all of that stuff. That's why, that's why old timers would say, I plead the blood. You ever heard that phrase? I plead the blood. It's nowhere in the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible, but it's a throwback to a legal term of pleading something. I plead something. When you get to a place in court and you have no other testimony, you've got to plead something. And so you plead the blood. What's the blood? The blood is the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. I'm pleading a greater testimony, a more than perfect testimony. I've been living the law. I've been following after the law, but I'm not saved. And so now comes grace, and grace is more than perfect, and grace is able to bridge the gap that keeps us from being saved, that keeps us, that, 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 that stay there, that gulf there. I follow the law like the Old Testament would say. We'd follow the law, but we were not yet saved. But then grace comes along, and grace makes a way by which we can be saved. So it's more than perfect. Grace is more than perfect. The law is perfect, but grace is more than perfect. This is how God is absolute. Nobody else can do this but God. God is absolute in everything, and he's absolutely absolute. Stay with me, okay? If we were going to apply the absoluteness to God, there's degrees of different things. There's degrees of uh, uh, perfections. There's degrees of cleanliness and unclean. There's degrees between holy and profane. And when something is clean, it's still not as clean as God is clean. When something is holy, it's still not as holy as God is holy. Does that make sense? There's these degrees here that he has. And so you could go through all these scriptures and you could see that he made difference between the holy or or between the clean and between the unclean. And then you go and you look at the, the holy And then there's the most holy. Remember we read it earlier, the phrase, the way of the holiest of all. So there's the holy, but then there's the most holy and the most holy place. So we we could read a whole slew of scriptures and passages here where he has the holy place. I think you guys know that. And then he has the most holy place and the holiest of holies because God is holy. He's absolute in everything. So if something's holy, God is holier than the holy. Does that make sense? Are, are you following me here today? I know you can't conceive that because we only know clean. But God is cleaner than clean. Okay? He's absolutely, in every way, more holy than that. Uh, uh, he gave us the law. 
which is perfect, holy, and spiritual, but he's above the law. We can follow the law, but God's above the law. He doesn't need the law. When we follow the law, we, we condemn ourselves. Amen. But he is above the law. He's greater than anything we can comprehend, anything that we can conceive, anything we could ascribe to him. So he is holy. His law is holy, but he is absolute in holiness. He's the holiest of the holy. God is holier than the holiest. He's higher than the highest. He's better than the best. Amen? He's more than the mostest. However you want to put it, God is more because he's absolute. He's without restraint in every way. If we were to look at this in his absoluteness applied to his holiness and his glory, and I'm going to skip through some of this for the sake of time, um, he was the most holy God. And they were not allowed to approach unto him. In fact, he was so holy that his presence was even deadly to those that were sanctified to serve. God gave them a law and said, you follow this and you'll be holy and you can come and serve in the tabernacle. Well, Nadab and Abihu had been sanctified, were holy, were acceptable to serve, but they did something wrongly and they bystepped the the order of their father who was anointed and ordained to be the one, the high priest, and they stepped up and they took the coals from one altar and they come into the other altar and the holiness of God smote them dead and they were struck. And God spoke to Moses in another passage of scripture. Moses goes and says, speak unto the, or God said, speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times in the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark that he die not for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. And so even though he was ordained and he was holy, made holy by God, God is still holier than that. Okay? So as holy as you can get, you cannot even come close to the holiness of God. Moses goes up and uh, uh, holiness, uh, Moses goes up, holiness is always demanded so they could serve in the presence of God. Holiness, by the way, holiness has always been about preparing us for God's presence. The reason why we're holy, be ye holy for I am holy. The reason why we want to be holy is because God's holy. And if we're unholy, we can't have any fellowship with him. That's that's the whole appeal to holiness. Can I say that again? Be ye holy. Why? Because God is holy. When you want to be like God, you want to be holy. Nobody has to go around telling you, hey, you got to do this, got to do that. No, there's something inside of your heart that says, what can I do to be Christ-like? I want to be as much like God as possible because he's holy. And even if I try to be holy and I become holy, I'm still not as holy as he is. Amen? He's more holy than I am. So the absoluteness, uh, uh, the absoluteness of God's glory is, is amazing. It's God's glory. I'm skipping through some scriptures here. What time is it? Okay. I got to quit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to almost get there. The absoluteness of God's glory. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Uh, God challenged Job. Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellence, and array thyself with glory and beauty. God challenged Job and said, okay, Job, you think you're so great. Do what I'm doing. Just, just be like me. Of course, Job said, no, I couldn't do that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay? So let's, let's look at the heavens. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalms 19 and 1. Let's look at the heavens. In our solar system, in our, in our uh, uh, yeah, solar system here, the sun is the source. It's the original material source of all the light and the heat and the energy in our solar system that sustains physical life. We could not survive without it, nor could we survive if we get too close or too far away from it. In fact, the closer you get to the sun, the deadlier its presence is. This is a declaration of the glory of God. You get close to God's glory, amen, it burns you up. There's, there's, you can't stand the presence of God. You can't stand in the presence of God. That's why when Moses comes, uh, uh, he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't even look at my face. But I, and, and it's an idiom he's using. He's saying, I'll show you my hinder parts. He put his hand on them, passed by. And he said, when I passed by, and, and we understand all that process there and the allegories there. And Moses comes down from the mountain. When he comes down from the mountain to speak to the people, his face radiated so much that the people, the Bible says, couldn't even look at Moses. And Moses had to veil himself so he could talk to them. That's how holy God is. I don't know if we can really, I don't even know if we can really comprehend or understand how holy God is, except for saying he's holier than the holiest. He is absolutely holy in every, every way. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the earth revolves around the sun within a narrow parameter which allows us to closely benefit from the glory of God. A little farther away or a little closer, we would be in trouble. And so, here it is. We see this incredible thing of the glory of God. So God is, is telling us, by the heavens declaring the glory of God, we better be in right position with the Lord. Amen? Nadab and Abihu thought, well, I can go into here. I can just, I'm already made holy, and they marched in there. God snuffed them out. Somebody else said, well, we don't have to be like God. We can go out and we can live however we want and we can pick up the ark of God and take it whenever we want. No, you can't live like that. You've got to be in a right position with God. That's, that's like the earth in this small parameter. Amen. Existing here, we exist because we're in this right parameter of relationship with God. You and I have to be in relationship with the Lord. The sight of the Lord in the Old Testament was uh, like a devouring fire. He was like a devouring fire. And the Bible says, amen, in the New Testament that he is a consuming fire. His holiness is so great. His holiness is so great that it consumes everything that is unholy. And he says, I am a jealous God. He is a, a, a holy God in every sense. Amen. So I'm rushing through here because I want to get to the end here. And that's this. That the absoluteness of God reveals to us. That he is beyond all measure and relativity. And that makes him so glorious in his holiness. It makes him so glorious in his holiness. Deuteronomy 4 and 24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Deuteronomy 9 and 3. Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out. And destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. His light, His light is without any diminishing of its glory. In a couple days, I think it's next Monday, we will have the uh, solar eclipse. None of your GPSs are going to work. Apparently all the appliances are going to shut down. And it's going to be utter chaos. We hope you survive. We'll pray for you. But everybody's going to be out there standing, looking up at the sun. 
And if you look at the sun, there are what they call sunspots or dark spots on the sun. Those dark spots on the sun are not really dark. They're just not as bright as some of the other parts and as hot as some of the other parts of the sun. And so one thing, all the scientists, I can't remember how many telescopes, I think they got like 67 telescopes, the scientific telescopes lined up that during the solar eclipse, the moon's going to be blocking the ultimate heat and they're going to be able to read the radio waves and all that other stuff that goes on outside and around the sun. And so they're going to be looking at all that stuff. They're going to be examining the dark spots and the hot spots and all this kind of stuff. Amen. And so uh, they're looking at all that. Dark spots on the sun are just spots that aren't as, as hot as other spots. But can I tell you, God has no darkness. God has no sunspots. Come on. He's just holy. There's no part of him that's not as holy as the other part. He's holy and he's absolutely holy. He's absolute in every way. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I serve a holy God. Amen. Amen. He dwelleth in light so glorious that the Bible says that no man can approach thereunto. 1 Timothy 6 and 16. Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. God is absolutely absolute and if it weren't for him revealing himself to us we could never understand the God who is holier than the most holy he's absolute and his absoluteness applies to every attribute that he has we're going to look at the attributes the attributes of immutability the attributes of his omniscience the attributes of his omnipotence it's not just that he's omniscient or immutable or uh, uh, omni uh, omnipotent. He is absolutely immutable. He is absolutely omniscient. He is absolutely without any limitation. He is absolutely all by himself. These are the things that he is. And these are the things that causes him to be God. He's absolute. He's without any other condition being upon him. That's who God is. That's who God is. And so we have to start here to understand this. Remember we talked about a little bit earlier. Stand together with me. <clears throat> I can feel you need some blood to rush to your feet. <laughs> Remember we talked about a little bit earlier that there was the beginning and then there was before the beginning. Does anybody remember that? We're talking about before the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. Okay? So we ask ourselves, what was before the beginning? This is what we're talking about before the beginning. This is who God is. He's immutable, which means he never changes. We'll start with that. He never changes, and he never has changed. That means he's from everlasting to everlasting. So if we could go back to everlasting, and we can't. We can't even comprehend it. If we go back, this is what God is, and God does not change. This is fundamental in understanding the oneness of God. So many people, when they approach the Bible and they approach the New Testament, they don't understand the Father, the Son language, the Holy Spirit language, what are all these things, and they, they bring certain things, binders and, and, and parameters upon the text, and they impose things upon Scripture 
that they cannot understand. We're going to talk and explain about why the incarnation had to happen. And, and we'll, we'll cover these things. So I know we're getting a little bit more academic in this, but this is important that we know this. This is very important that we understand this. God is absolute. God transcends everything. And you've got to have an understanding of that in order for you to understand just the fundamental things about what Jesus said when he came down to this earth. And when you understand this, wow, the words of Christ are so powerful. <laughs> when he stood, you'll understand why they wanted to kill him when he stood before them and said, before Abraham was, I am. You know what he was saying? I am absolutely absolute. And they said, no, no, you're not. We're not going to allow that to happen. But he revealed himself to us. So amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for the power of your